This, I was sharing with Stan earlier, just before the service began, this is a passage that has been in my heart for some three or four months and has kept coming back to me. It's not the easiest passage. It's not the most uplifting passage. But it's a passage that's so important that we just take time and examine what it would speak to each one of our hearts over the course of the next few minutes. So 2 Samuel Chapter 15, verse 1. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you in the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has a suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. At the outset of our sermon this morning, I wish to make three things abundantly clear. The first is this, no preacher stands before a congregation perfect. No preacher stands before a congregation free from sin. They simply declare God's word heralding the truth that is there from the very word of God. Secondly, a preacher preaches sermons that come from Scripture, not from their imagination, not from their desires, but what the Bible says. And thirdly, they do not take other preachers' sermons, but they listen for the voice of God for the good of the congregation. It's an appropriate time just to break into our series in John's Gospel this morning, a series that we have entitled Believing in the Son of God. And the reason that we break into it is manifold, but it's good from time to time just to take a rest from a long series that we might focus on something slightly different. And we come to a period in the year where naturally this break occurs. Uh, next week is Remembrance Sunday, and it's good to take time to think about what that remembrance means and then after that, I'm in two weeks holiday. That's the good part for me. Uh, I don't know what uh, Stan or Nigel Kenny, who's coming to preach at the end of November, I don't know what they will preach on, uh, but we look forward to that. Uh, and the other reason it's good to break into John just now is we've reached a point in John chapter 4 where there is a natural uh, beginning on the subject of worship, and I wish to deal with that in January, rather than the beginning to speak about worship this morning and then come back to it in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so we'll just spend some time in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And the reason that this passage has jumped out of the pages of Scripture to me is that it seems to deal with the way that sin works in the life of a believer. Not the way that sin works in the life of a non-Christian. Not the way that sin works in the people of the world, but the way that sin works in the life of a Christian, in the life of a believer. 
And the matter of sin, of course, is a constant challenge to each of us. How we would all love as Christians to simply come to Christ and to be saved and to know that we're saved and then never have to front up or deal with the matter of sin again. It would be wonderful. But God does not remove us from this world when we are saved, but we are left here. And we're left in a place that is utterly cursed by sin. We're left in the midst of a people who don't truly know the danger of sin, but yet practice it deliberately every day. And we find that as Christians, sin still comes after us. It hunts us down and causes us problems. So what is it that we can do? Surely we must have a method of addressing this situation. And so we do because we have the words of Scripture that bring to us a warning as to how sin operates in my life and in your life. It is God's word that teaches us. It's not some airy-fairy self-help program. But it is God's very word speaking to us, alerting us, and pointing us to what we must be aware of. And so we can rely on scripture for all things. Our passage this morning falls into the life of King David. And we read that psalm, Psalm 51 earlier on, uh, where David had been confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan had gone to David and David was made aware that God knew of his sin and David had to face up to what he had done. Now, before he sinned with Bathsheba, David was a man of God. We can't properly term him a Christian because he lived before Christ came, but he was a man who was devoted and faithful to God. And yet in that faithfulness, in that devotion, sin came and sin tripped him up and sin has caused him problems. And as he comes to God for forgiveness, as he receives God's forgiveness, his kingdom and his reign and his rule still continue. And we come to this point in his life in 2 Samuel 15, but it's not a happy time. His kingdom is in trouble. David's oldest son, Absalom, is trying to take over the throne. And revolution is very much in the arrow. It's not the form of revolution where swords are drawn and blood is shed. Not yet, anyway. But it's more subtle than that. This is a bloodless revolution. Because it's a revolution that takes place in the heart of people. Absalom thinks he can get David's kingdom by stealth. And in Absalom we see the parallels of how sin can work in our hearts. That it might take us away from the joy of being with our God. The tragedy is that revolution can come into our hearts and steal away us sticking beside our Savior. So how does sin work? How does it operate? Let's just look at this more closely. And we firstly see, I've got five points this morning, five relatively brief points. Uh, about five points that speak about how sin comes and operates. And the first is this in verse one. We see that sin causes us to focus upon self. Sin focuses upon self. Absalom is the son of David. He is royalty. He's a prince. But he is laying the groundwork of revolution against David in verse one. He's a self-centered man, Absalom. He thinks he's entitled to more than he already has. He's upset at how King David has treated him in the past. And he's out to get revenge on David, but he's always got his eye on the bigger picture. You see, Absalom thinks that he will be great. Absalom thinks that he will be king. Absalom thinks that he will have it all. And so he moves things and he maneuvers circumstances so that he might have everything. And Absalom is just this man that focuses on self. And that's the great victory that sin looks to have over your life. 
He wants you to focus on yourself. It works on the ego. It centers on self and it promotes the individual. The danger of sin is seen the minute that the individual believes that they are more important and more entitled and more valuable than other people or even than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in Absalom's hearts and Absalom's heart, and therefore in our hearts, there is a danger when we start to think we don't have everything that we deserve. And Absalom here does everything that he can to look good in the eyes of others. Look what he does. He provides for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Now Absalom was actually a man who had been given a very privileged position because David had cast him out for his presence. Absalom had murdered his half-brother Amnon in revenge for what Amnon had done to despise his sister Tamar. And David got rid of him from the kingdom. But as time went on, David regretted that and David said, well, bring him back, but, but keep him at arm's length. And so what David does is he invites this revolutionary back into the capital city of Israel. David acts upon his heart. David acts upon his self-interests. And ultimately the doors open for Absalom to be there and for Absalom to cause all manner of trouble. And that is how sin works with us. It just looks to get into our heart that we might focus away from Christ, that we might focus upon ourselves. And then we find that we can put up no resistance because sin has got hold of us. And then sin does a very, very clever thing because it speaks into our heart and it says, you are the most important person in this place, in this town, in this church, in this world. I mean, look what Absalom does. He, he gets a chariot and horses. He gets 50 runners. Now, these 50 runners were probably bodyguards that out, went out in front of the chariot, making sure that the crowds didn't get in their way. But all of these things have the trappings of power and of influence. Only great men had these things. And it's a visual statement that Absalom makes that he says, I am so important. Take note of me. Look at my status. Look at my wealth. Look at my privilege. Look at my strength. And in me, you will see everything that you desire to be and you will love me for it. Absalom has the ambition of appearing to be royalty. And so we should be warned that sin makes us think that we're entitled. Sin will promise us everything. Sin will encourage us to go after the trappings of influence and of power. Sin will urge us to go after our own heart. Let me tell you that the heart of the man is deceitful above all things. And so if we're following our heart, we will never be following the heart of our God. And we need help. We need protecting. And so what is it that we might do to avoid being dragged into the self-centeredness that allows sin to reign? Well, we need to be on our guard against wanting to look good. You know, as Christians, we don't follow our heart. We don't follow our appearance. But in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16, we have this. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. You know, when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, a transformation took place in you. You're not the same person as you were before you met Christ, but you have the mind of Christ. 
You think on things that are different from the way that this world thinks. You meditate upon things that this world would never want to meditate upon. And these things are of God. They are of Christ. They are of the cross. They are of the salvation that he gives. And they are of the future that he promises in heaven. And we are to have that mind and to think upon Christ and all he has done. For when we think on Christ, we are not thinking on ourselves. Also, we can pray. Psalm 19 verses 13 and 14 tell us that we should pray. And these verses in Psalm 19 says, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. Then I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. You know, when we are praying and we come into that place of prayer, and we bow down, whether it is literally or metaphorically, when we bow down in the presence of our God, we are focusing our thoughts, our hearts, our minds upon our God, not on ourselves. And in Proverbs 5, verse 1, we are warned to pay attention. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. A very great danger that we face as Christians is that we think we've got it covered. I've got this under control. I've seen that sin defeated in my life. I've seen this other sin defeated in my life. I know that Christ reigns and so therefore I can take my eye off the ball just for a moment and relax. We can never relax against sin. And when sin comes upon us and over us and in us, we confess it immediately. Sin works by focusing on self. But it also does something else. Look at verse 2, please. Sin focuses on self, yes, but sin works by seduction. By seduction. One of the most important tasks that any king could perform was to provide judgment for his citizens. It's funny how down through the years there have always been courts, there have always been claims, there have always been disagreements and it requires a judge to sit over those claims and decide what is right and that's what the king did. And Absalom, he wants to look like a king, we remember that and so what he does is he goes and he pretends he's a judge or he acts as if he should be a judge and he takes on that role of the king acting as a judge in the land. David was the supreme judge and many, many people would come for his judgment. And so that gate that was leading into Jerusalem where Absalom was, was jam-packed with people looking to take their case before David. And Absalom filters them off, funnels them off, and intercepts them at the gate at the earliest possible moment. And notice how he goes about it. It's deliberate. And he tunes the hearts, the ears, the minds of those poor people. He asks them where they're from. That's just what the king would have done. And this puts Absalom in a superior position. He makes the person before him believe that he, Absalom, is greater than King David. And so he takes this position of being superior. Absalom wants, in fact, he needs the people to believe him as being better than David. He seduces them by his appearance, by his attitude, by his manner. And this great seduction is to trick the people who have complaints into thinking that he has authority, he has position, he has the ability to deal with all of their problems. And it's a most dangerous thing that Absalom does because 
He's fooling people away from what's true justice, what's true authority, what's true royalty. And he takes them into a deceitful and dishonest place. What Aslam does is masterly. It's clever. But ultimately it's wrong. Now anybody that tells you that sin is stupid doesn't understand what sin is like because sin is not stupid. Sin's not without wisdom. Sin doesn't even lack an ability. Sin has all these things. Sin indeed is the master of deception and of deceit. It tricks us and it leads us where we don't want to go. And if we had been in our right minds, we would never go in that place. But sin puts us in that state where we're not of our right minds. We desire things with a real lust. We hate things with a real passion. And sin will do whatever it takes to ensnare you. But the question is whether or not you will let it trick you in this way. Just take a moment to see that Absalom got up early to do all of this. He was prepared. He was organized. He was ready. He wasn't haphazard in any way that he did things. And he knows he has to get in first to divert people away from David. And he springs his trap with consummate perfection. He starts taking people away from the right course of judgment and justice to his perverse ways. So let me encourage us all this morning that sin will try to get in first. It will try to prize us away from thinking about Christ. Sin's organized, it's ready, it's not haphazard. And that means that we must be prepared to resist its advances. Hebrews 12 verse 2 gives us a little phrase that is absolutely vital for us in our defense against sin. And that verse just simply says or begins to say by these words, it says, fix our eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes don't just glance at him. Don't take him in as you look across all things, but fix your eyes upon Jesus. Let your eyes stay there. Let your eyes keep looking there. Because the more you look at Jesus Christ, the less attractive, the less seductive sin becomes. We have to be wise. And we have to center our hearts upon the truths of Jesus Christ. We remember that he was that lamb that died for us. We remember that he's coming back for us. And we remember that Jesus Christ never changes. Well, sin changes. Sin alters its appearance, but Christ never changes. It's the same yesterday and today and forever. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we always find him the way that he is because he never changes. Well, don't let sin seduce your heart. But thirdly, and in verse 3, we, we see that sin looks for sympathy. Sin looks for sympathy. Once Absalom has asked them, where are you from? And that person affirms that they are indeed part of the tribes of Israel. Absalom immediately says, oh, your claims are good. You do have a case. You are right. He doesn't test the evidence. He doesn't question the validity of their case. And he whispers in their ears that he would find in their favor. There's nothing more wonderful than being told you're right. That's six years since I was told I was right. I've been married six years. That's not because I'm right and I'm just being lied. It's because I'm always wrong. 
but we delight to think that we're right, don't we? Even although we probably don't say it very often, but we would love just to say that little phrase, told you so. Because in our hearts we think, oh, I've got to be right. Why? Because the universe centers on me. But Absalom, he actually takes them away from what is right. There's no real representation here in front of the king. Absalom's stoking up a hatred for David. He's tricking the people into believing that David is useless and corrupt. And so these people give their sympathies to Absalom. He tricks them into believing that they're right. And he tricks them into believing that they're right by spending time with them and listening to them and making them think that they are the center of the universe. And it does two things. In spending that time with people and listening to them, they believe that Absalom cares for them. Absalom didn't care for these people. They were a means to an end. Absalom wanted to steal their hearts, but he didn't want to give them anything that was worthwhile. The second thing that it did is it makes the people think that David had no interest in them, but David did care. David did love them. He was a good king who ruled fairly. Well, he made mistakes and he sinned like everybody else. And what a terrible and gross sin he committed. But ultimately, at the root of his heart, David was a good king and the people stopped believing this. And that's what sin does to us. It takes our sympathy. We sympathize with the sinful position, don't we? Because sin has made us feel valued, so our affection will lie with it. Sin makes us feel hard done by, even although we've not been, and so our sympathy is with it. And sin makes us think that our every complaint, our every moan, our every gripe is justified, even though it never could be so. What a terrible lie. And that's what Absalom has done. He's told a downright lie about David, saying he doesn't care for your justice. It's funny, but in the chapter before, in chapter 14, the wise women of Tekoa had actually said that David was capable of discerning good and evil, 2 Samuel 14, verse 17. But all Absalom is doing is feeding discontent after discontent into the hearts of the people to the point that they sympathized and loved him. And sin does that because it destroys and it deceives innocent character. It makes us think that our God could never sympathize with us. It makes us think that God would never give us what is right and what is proper. When all the time that's precisely what God does. You know, if there was ever one who truly sympathized with us, it was Jesus Christ. He sympathized with us he couldn't empathize with us in our sin because he knew no sin. But he sympathized with us in our lostness. And he went to Calvary's cross to die for our sin. And he went to Calvary's cross that we would be forgiven, that we would be guilt-free, that we would know the peace that passes all understanding, that we would know no fear about our eternal future. And 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says that we have a Savior who says this. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. And so we must see no sympathy in sin. But fourthly, verses four and five, sin causes to focus on self, sin works by seduction, and sin, sin looks for sympathy 
Verses 4 and 5, and the fourth point is that sin preys upon sentiment. Absalom continues his campaign for hearts and minds, and he does it in even more devious and deceitful ways. He's discredited David in a despicable way, and he now makes the claim that he would never treat the people like that. Oh, David has been terrible to you. I would never treat you like that. And in an emotional way, he tells the people that he would most certainly help them if only he was a judge. Sets himself up as an alternative to David. And the implication there, of course, is that Absalom can give the people what they want and what they need. David can't. And the people fall for it. And they fall for it almost literally because they fall down before Absalom in worship. You only fall down before a king. But there they are prostrating themselves before Absalom, this pretender. And he accepts the kisses of the people on his hand. Again, something the king had the privilege of receiving. And Absalom is really saying, well, I am the genuine king, not David. And Absalom takes advantage of the people's hearts, their sympathies. Sin always lifts itself up as being better than the path of righteousness. Everyone here is encouraged by Absalom to think that he's better than David. Because Absalom knows if the people have a heart for him, if the people have a sentiment for him, then his rebellion will succeed. And so he puts out his propaganda. You know, let me tell you and warn you this morning, don't listen to the sentiment of sin. Sin will whisper in your ear that it can give you everything that Christ can't give you. And that's wrong in two ways. Firstly, sin can give you nothing but heartache. Sin has no power to give anything that is good. And the second thing is this, Jesus Christ has every power to give you what is good and what is right and what is proper and what is noble. Absalom, he's accepting all the greetings of being a king, but he never would be a true king. David was a king with great honor. In fact, David had been anointed king when he was quite young. And the king of that day was Saul. And you might remember the story that Saul hated David and Saul tried to kill David and he did everything in his power to get David. But there came a point in time where David hid in a cave and Saul, funnily enough, came into that tent and he lay down. And David crept up upon Saul, dagger in hand. And what did David do to this man that wanted to kill him? And David cuts off a bit of his robe. You see, David was a man of honor and he would not kill the king that God had put upon the throne. How different David treated the king that hated him from the way that Absalom treated the king that loved him. You know, Jesus Christ does want our sentiment. And Jesus Christ has experienced everything that we have experienced so that we might know that he took upon himself humanity. Christ knew what grief was. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Christ knew what temptation was. He spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness being tempted. Christ knew poverty. The Son of God, the Son of Man, had nowhere to lay his head. Christ knew frustration as he saw the money changers in the temple. Christ knew tiredness as he sat by that woman at the well in John 4. 
Christ knew disappointment as he looked upon the city of Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets, the city that should have known God. Christ knew rejection as the disciples that followed him fell away. John 6 verse 66. Christ knew sorrow as he fell down on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane and prayed that this cup of judgment would pass from him. Christ knew ridicule in his trial as he was blindfolded, as he was spat upon, and as he was demanded to prophesy who hit him, he was ridiculed. And Jesus Christ knew loneliness as he hung upon the cross and as he cried out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, sin has no sentiment for you. But Christ has every sentiment for you. Maybe one of these things describes who you are today. Maybe you're grief-stricken. Maybe you're tempted to the point of breaking. Maybe you are lost in the downward spiral of poverty. Maybe you're overcome by frustration or sinking in weariness. Maybe you're polarized by disappointment or devalued by rejection. It could be that you're drowning in sorrow or indeed that you're embarrassed by the ridicule of others. Or it might just be the case this morning that you are crushed by loneliness. And let me once again say, look to Jesus Christ. Christ knows. Christ cares. Christ can heal. Christ can save. Come to Christ today for his forgiveness. No matter what you're afflicted by. Don't let the sentiment of sin keep you from him because ultimately in verse 6 and we come to the final point this morning ultimately we see that sin results in sedition and tragedy truly strikes in verse 6 because up to this point it is possible that Absalom could have failed his plan could have fallen apart things could have backfired upon him but he has seduced, he has distracted, he has subverted the people. Absalom's been at it and he's tried every trick in the book and you know something that has worked? He's hit pay dirt. And what a sadness we should feel that that is what took place. Because our verse here in verse 6 tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. The people had been convinced by Absalom. The people's affections had been taken hostage by Absalom. The people's desires had been corrupted by Absalom and Absalom was poised to make his final move against his father, the king. We need to know that sin results in sedition. In other words, it undermines true and valid authority. It creates a state of rebellion. It results in insurrection. And we see here that Absalom has conditioned the people for an uprising. The end result is natural, it's not logical, it's rational. <clears throat> because Absalom has gone about things in a way that is treason, that's treachery, that's dishonest, that's vile, that's underhand, but it's effective. Absalom succeeds in his heinous plan and that alone should cause us to weep. Let me ask you this, how does sin deal with us? How does sin deal with you? doesn't deal with you nicely or pleasantly or with courtesy, with philanthropy or with a desire to help. No, 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 no. Sin does nothing to you that is beneficial. It has one aim 
and one aim only. And the aim that sin has for you this morning is to drive a wedge between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is treachery. That is treason. And the tragedy of it is this, that Jesus Christ once did everything to break the power of sin in our lives as he hung upon the cross. And so often we give that power back to sin. These poor people, they believed Absalom while mistrusting David. We are poor people if we trust sin and disbelieve Christ. We are poor people if we crown sin in our hearts while deposing Jesus Christ. That is what sin will do in our hearts if we let it take hold. So how might we avoid this working of sin? Let me give you some verses of scripture just as we draw matters to a close. The first thing is that we have to have a hatred of sin. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, you love the Lord. Hate evil. It doesn't say hate people groups. It doesn't say hate nations or races. It says hate evil. And the second thing is we have to guard our heart. Proverbs 4 verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 command us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we are to be at our Lord Jesus Christ's side all the time. That we are to be examining our hearts all the time. That we are to be doing more for Christ all the time. That we are to be worshipping ever deeper our Lord and Saviour all the time. And James 1 verse 21 says that we are to receive the word implanted which is able to save our souls. Fill yourself with the word of God. That means the Bible. Fill yourself with it. How often do we read God's word? Why do we read it when we do read it? Because if we're reading God's word just to put a tick on our daily reading list, then we are wasting our time. But if we read God's word that it might fill us, that it might implant itself within us, then we will be able to internalize it and to trust upon it. And finally, 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Simply put, be determined to not give in to sin. You know, there is much for us to do. There is much that we must do. But ultimately, we trust in, we rely upon our Lord Jesus Christ. We never leave the side of our God. Because the truth is this, when we try and do it by ourselves, we fall down and we fail and we are defeated once again. But while we are in Christ, while we are beside Christ, while we are relying upon Christ, we may remember that he has the victory. And in him we share that victory. Sadly, we could read on in 2 Samuel and find that Absalom's revolution 
succeeds. After four years of preparation, Absalom comes out in open hostility against David. And you know something? He takes the throne. He's successful and David has to flee for his life. But if we were to read even further on in 2 Samuel, we would find that actually Absalom is killed and that David is put back on the throne. And so his revolution and his insurrection is temporary. But the damage is done because Absalom's revolution had consequences. And here's my encouragement for us this morning. We could read on in our lives and we will always find that Christ has that victory We will always find that when we're in Christ, we will never do anything that can take us away from his salvation. And so we can look to an eternal future and we will be there gathered around his feet in heaven. But you know something? When we give in to sin, that has its consequences. It doesn't cause Christ to hate us. But it destroys our joy, our assurance of being in our Savior. So please remember the damage that sin causes. Remember the pain that sin inflicts. And remember that no good ever comes of sin. We don't want to see sin have any victory, gain any traction or make any advance. So we stay aware. We stay alert. We stay focused on our Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And it's good that we know the way that sin works. Because we can work against it through the victory that is Christ's. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you this morning for taking us to this challenging portion of Scripture. We thank you in it. We see an example of all that is wrong in the heart of a person. But we recognize that our hearts are not pure. That our hearts are prone to sinfulness. We do ask that you would make us wise before and during the event rather than after. Because we want to honor you, we want to glorify you, we want to live for you. And so it may be the case that we would always come and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be kept from sin. Help us, we do pray, for we ask it in his precious, most holy, In peerless name, the name of Jesus, amen.